our family history. And what I mean by that is who we are as a church. Where do we fit into Christendom as a whole? And so a lot of today is going to focus on the history of the church. Let me open with prayer. God in heaven, we thank you for the church. Uh, And not not specifically this church with a small c, but the the big c church, the church global, the church all over the face of the earth. Uh, We thank you for how you are building the church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We thank you for uh, making your glory seen in how the body of Christ is to be a visible representation of our invisible Savior, uh, the one who right now we cannot see, and yet we know he stands at the right hand of the throne of God interceding for us, Lord. And so we pray that as we think about the church today and, and try to understand where we fit into the church, Big C, we pray that you would give us clarity and gospel courage Uh, that we would follow in the footsteps of those who have gone before us as faithful gospel witnesses. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, This is a family history today. And, uh, you know, if you meet somebody in the South and say, who are you? There's sort of three levels to that question. The first level is, what's your name? Um, So they might say, my name's Alex. And then the second level of that question is, what do you do? But really, in the South, at least, when we ask the question, who are you, we're kind of asking your family tree going back as far as you can take it. Uh, And so you've met people in the South who can trace their lineage, sometimes to the point that it's probably an idol, um, but they can trace their lineage back 10 generations or more. Um, That's, in our mind, that's how you get to know who we really are uh, in the South, is to say this is the whole lineage of people from whom we come. Well, today we're going to do that. We're going to look at the church. Who are we as a Protestant or evangelical church? Each week, the class is going to narrow the scope a little bit. So we've been talking broadly about just what it means to be a Christian. And then we're narrowing the scope down to an evangelical or Protestant Christian. And then we'll narrow it more to a Reformed Christian Uh, starting next week, Lord willing, and we'll look at things like Reformed worship, Reformed piety, Reformed theology, Reformed church government, uh, and all of those things will flesh out into who we are so that as you come to the end of this class, hopefully you have a better understanding of First Scots. But today we're going to look at what it means that we are an evangelical church, and we're going to look at some history. We're going to engage with some of the errors to which the Protestant, against which the Protestants were protesting. Uh, we're going to try to come up with a gra- uh, come to a grip on that. And then we're going to look at five tenets of the Reformation known as the five solas. What does sola mean? Alone or only. So we're going to look at five solas uh, towards the end of class. Look with me at page 20 in your booklet. And we're just going to work our way through church history for a while. So we're going to cover about 1,500 years in probably the next 15 or 20 minutes. Um, Jesus was crucified. We don't know exactly what year. Uh, Jesus was 33 when he died, but we don't know that he was born in what we would consider 0 AD. Uh, We don't know that he was exactly uh, born at that point. Uh, He may have been born actually a couple years earlier when you look at the timeline of Herod. We simply don't know. And it's not biblically imperative that we get that right, that we understand the exact year of Jesus' birth. But let's say Jesus was, uh, good morning, welcome, that Jesus was crucified around 30 AD. He was crucified, dead, buried, uh, resurrected, and ascended. And the church starts to build. The church starts to grow after that point. And so you, you get the Pauline letters starting uh, in the 40s-ish AD. Uh, you get Paul, uh, Peter's letters and so on. So the church is starting to grow. But the main context in which the church is starting to grow is one of great persecution. Uh, what do you think of with persecution? What comes to mind when I say that word? Do you think more physical? Do you think emotional, political? How do you think of persecution? I think political first. Yeah, good. And we're going to trace some of the politics in a minute. 
Um, but in the first century, persecution would have been very much violent. It would have been very much physical. Well, Nero is emperor, 60s AD, and Nero is very bothered by Christians. In around 63 or 64 AD, a fire destroys Rome, and Nero sees this as an opportunity. Uh, And the opportunity is, I can turn everybody against these Christians by blaming the fire on them. So 63, 64 AD, Rome burns, terrible fire, and Nero says it was the Christians who did it. Now, most historians actually believe it wasn't the Christians, but who that started the fire? Nero himself, right? Um, But he starts the fire, and what he does through that is begin to make Christians public enemy number one. So for, for 20, 30 years, persecution has been sort of unincorporated. It's been detached and disintegrated. And Nero starts to make it a political movement to persecute Christians. So 63, 64 AD, the persecution on Christians really starts to heat up. We would think that Jude and the uh, letter of 2 Peter were written in that window from about 65 AD to 70 AD before the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. Um, so that gives you some context for understanding some of the New Testament letters, why they are so bent on perseverance under persecution. Um, for a couple hundred years, uh, about 250 years, the life of the average Christian was one of facing persecution. So you just think of 50 years ago, you wanted to move up in the business world, especially if you're in the South, you moved to a new town you figured out what's the socially upstanding church that I go to. You know, if I want to move up, one of the things I have to do is find a church. Well, if you were to tell a first century Christian that's one of the ways you move up the social ladder is to identify as a Christian, they would have said, are you kidding me? That's a death threat. You know, to say I follow the Lord Jesus was to sign my own death warrant in many, many ways. So from the 60s AD uh, till about the start of the 300s, the Christians are very heavily persecuted. Now, If you know your history, did that sort of snuff out the movement of Christianity? No, what happens historically when the church is persecuted? It grows, grows, right? It grows exponentially. So you've got Tertullian, one of the church fathers, saying the the blood of the martyrs is the what? Seed of the church. And then if you were to keep reading that quote, it's really fascinating. He says, the more you mow us down, and he sees himself as a seed. He sees... The martyr's blood is seeds, and it's cut down, it's mowed down, it plants new life, and it grows up a hundredfold. Um, and so the church really was thriving under persecution. But you come to the early 300s, you've got the edict of persecution, really legalizing and codifying persecution of Christians under Diocletian. But then you get to 312 AD, and you come to one of the most perplexing characters in all of church history. Who is it? Constantine, right? What makes Constantine so perplexing? Do you know? What do you think? He's, what do you think? Mm-hmm. And it's not strange for somebody to become a Christian. The, the Spirit can do that. But the circumstances of his conversion were very peculiar. Uh, he allegedly saw, he was in battle. He allegedly saw a sign of the cross and heard a voice that said, in this sign, conquer. And really that was, in Constantine's own words, that was the, his own conversion. Um, if you were to look at Constantine's life, there's really a lot of question as to whether Constantine was really a believer. Uh, There were a lot of inconsistencies, but what he did was began to make Christianity not only a legal religion, but the primary religion of Rome. Uh, And so you come to 313, the Edict of Milan gives tolerance to Christians. Now, if we were to look at sort of a, a, a bell curve of the church, the church is growing, growing, growing under persecution, and then they reach a time of prosperity under Constantine, and guess what happens? it starts to decline. The health, the doctrine of the church starts to decline. It becomes so politically entangled that you can't separate the Holy Roman Empire from the church. Uh, And so it creates, uh, it it really, 
One of my favorite sayings, you've heard uh, it said, the, the song the Philistines said, sang about David and Saul. Saul has killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. We could say this about in church history. Affliction or persecution has killed its thousands, but prosperity its tens of thousands. The church has always been at its worst when it was at the most peace with society. Christianity is a religion, a, a worldview of dying to self. And when the world embraces us or appears to embrace us, we tend to love. We tend to love and seek the approval and affirmation of the world. Well, let's go into what we'd call late antiquity, 320, uh, 325. Council of Nicaea. Today, we're going to say the Nicene Creed in worship. The church comes together in Council of Nicaea, and they're trying to figure out one question. And it's one that most of us really haven't had to think through because we are, we are heirs of Nicene theology, so we really didn't have to wrestle with this. But what are they trying to figure out in 325? What's the core issue at play doctrinally? Yeah. Who is Jesus, right? So you've got two sides of the debate. You've got the Arians. Arius was a leader in the early church. Arius taught that Jesus was the first and head of all creation, but he wasn't the eternal son of God. He was up against what we'd call the Orthodox side, the the Athanasian side. Athanasius was the leader of this, uh, the opposing movement. Athanasius taught that Jesus is the eternal son of God. So Arius would say there was a point where Jesus didn't exist. Athanasius says, no, he is co-eternal with the father. It's really interesting. I'm not going to write it on there, uh, but it actually, the whole debate over who Jesus was at, at Nicaea came down to one word and really one letter. It was the word homoousios or homoousios. So when we say the Nicene Creed today, we're going to say of one substance with the Father. That's the Greek word homoousios, same substance. That's what Athanasius and the Orthodox taught. Arius said, no, he's homoousios. It does not sound like a big difference. It's an iota, one letter in Greek. But Athanasius, or Arius was saying he's similar substance with the Father, but he's not exactly God. Now, help me out here real quick. What are the theological implications if Jesus is merely a created being and not God? Okay, good. He certainly, some of the things he said would be brought into question. Definitely. Good. So as a man, he could take our sins, but as God, he could take the infinite wrath of our sins. That's what I'm going to be preaching on today. If he wasn't man, he couldn't have taken our sins, but if he wasn't God, he couldn't have, paid, he couldn't have absorbed the wrath of his Father for our sins. He had to be infinite to, uh, to absorb infinite wrath on our behalf. See, our sins, even though we are finite people committing those sins, we are committing them against an infinite God. And therefore, the only one who could pay the penalty for our sins is God himself. So that's why Jesus had to be fully God and fully man. In the mind of Arius, Arius is saying, no, he's not fully God. He's definitely man and he's a great man and he's a sinless man. But he's just a man in the end. That's a huge deal. You and I didn't have to really iron that theology out in our minds when we started to get to know Christianity because for 1,700 years, the church has said, okay, this is who Jesus is. He is fully God and fully man. And that's a big deal. Our salvation hinges on that reality. So you come out of Nicaea, 325 AD, 395, Christianity is the official religion of the Holy Roman Empire. I'm going to say that's one of the most detrimental things that would ever happen for the sake of the church. Um, 405, this is really interesting. Uh, prior to this, the, most people, to, have, to be able to read the scriptures, you had to read Hebrew and Greek. You had a, a well-intended believer named Jerome, and Jerome wanted to translate the Bible into the Latin, uh, vul- what's called Vulgate. Vulgar just means common, so the common tongue of the people. So he translates the Bible 
into Latin. It's called Jerome's Latin Vulgate for the next thousand years. That's the main Bible of the church. He did a pretty good job. I'm not a, a language scholar, but I know he did a pretty good job, but he did one thing that would create a thousand years worth of problems. He came to the word repent. What does repent mean? To turn from. It's a great word in Greek, metanoia. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of life. Um, by the way, the PCA has a prison ministry called Metanoia. Isn't that a great name for a prison ministry? It's repentance, turning around. Um, he comes to translate Metanoia, repentance, but he translates it, do penance. Is there a difference between repent and do penance? What's penance? Yeah. Like, well, I did this, so now I've got to go do this and make up for it now. I'm even again. Yeah. It's, it's an effort at self-atonement. Okay. I don't think Jerome meant to, to corrupt the theology of the Christian church at that point, but for the next thousand years, the gospel becomes reshaped as do penance, do works of penance. Can you see how, when you scan that next thousand years from Jerome to the Reformation, how that theology corrupted the church? Because by the time you get to the 1500s, and we're going to skip most of the next thousand years, but by the time you get to the 1500s, the Roman Catholic Church is teaching a form of salvation that is not based on grace alone through faith alone. So Jerome's one mistake in that are you saying is, is that responsible for that Catholic theology? I'm saying it's a major part of it. Certainly there's more factors to it, but you can trace it back. That's the first time we see such a corruption of the Roman, uh, that led to the trajectory of the Roman Catholic Church. And we'll come back around to it. Certainly there's many factors, but this is one of the main ones that the average person, um, if they were reading their Bible, they are not seeing repent and believe the gospel. They're seeing do penance and believe the gospel, which produces a works plus faith sort of salvation. All right. So you keep going through church history, 1054, the East-West Schism, that's how we get the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholic churches. The main split, one of the main reasons was over theology of the Holy Spirit or what we call, the, call pneumatology. Um, there were, most people don't realize this, there were reform movements. Um, there were real believers in the church. We're not going to have a whole lot of time to, to touch on these, but you've got one of the first ones um, was Peter Waldo and the Waldensians. Have you all ever heard of the Waldensians? There's other parts of the world that the Waldensians are a pretty famous sect, and they still exist. Uh, but they were uh, seeking to reform for the gospel. They were heavily persecuted for it. Um, one of the most fascinating episodes in church history was in 1305. The Archbishop of Bordeaux is elected Pope, and he makes Avignon, France, his papal headquarters. Okay, so that's a major transition. Where was it before? Rome. You got to imagine, it's, it's almost, it would be in a sense like uh, a new president saying, I'm going to move the, the White House down to South Carolina. Um, major implications and probably 10 times the implications of of a president today saying this. So he's shifting the the center of Roman Catholicism to Avignon, France. What happens during that time is all the money that once went to Rome is now being filtered to Avignon and Rome starts to fall into disrepair. So what does Rome do? (laughs) They elect a new pope. Now, that pope, he's a heretic. He's not the real thing. He would never have moved the papacy there. Everybody knows that the line of succession goes straight from Jesus to the popes who were centered at Rome. Well, Jesus to Peter, to the popes centered at Rome. We don't believe that at all. There's no historical evidence of that prior to the 5th century or something like that. Um, but that's the Roman Catholic claim is that Peter was the bishop, first bishop of Rome, and following him, that's how we get the papacy. So you got in 13... 13- 78, you have two popes. Popes do what Pope's going to do, and they both excommunicate each other. So you get a new pope. (laughs) It's a total disaster. Um, One of the things you're going to see all throughout church history is 
God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. He uses these wacky, wonky things, and he brings about great results. So let's keep tracing the history. You, you, you got uh, the, papal, the great papal schism there. You've got them both excommunicating each other. You've got a new pope. He returns the papacy to Rome, but Rome is run down by this point. Well, you can't have the papacy in a run-down village. It's got to be the greatest village on the face of the earth, right? And so he, the new pope thinks, we've got to make Rome great again. Um, you do have some reformers along the way. You've got John Wycliffe. You've got Jan Hus uh, popping up. Others, these are great names. I'd encourage you to get some biographies of these men uh, because they really were, uh, they were forerunners of Luther, uh, did some tremendous things. So Rome is getting run down. They need to make Rome great again, so they spend tons and tons and tons of money making the Vatican great. So things like the Sistine Chapel. Um, Michelangelo starting the work on the Sistine Chapel in Rome, 1512. What's the problem with doing all sorts of glorious work like that to make Rome great? Money, 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 right? It's got to come from somewhere. Well, the, the, the church doesn't really have anything to sell. We don't sell products, do we? <laughs> or do we? Maybe there is something we can sell. Do penance. Maybe we can facilitate the way people do penance through the sale of indulgences. Have you all heard of indulgences before? I think everybody has. Did you know you can still go online today and buy indulgences? Old habits die hard. You can, buy, you can print out a certificate of indulgence. But the idea of an indulgence is what? What's the point? Yeah, you can buy your salvation. Now, that just sounds crass. Let's actually make it about buying our parents' salvation and those who've already gone before that are stuck in this thing that Roman Catholicism called purgatory. What verse did they use to get purgatory out of the Bible? What's that? Good. We would say that proves there is no purgatory. Rome, what verse did Rome use to say there is this place called purgatory where the dead will go for a few thousand years to be purged of their sins? There isn't one. So in Rome, by this point, you've got three sources of authority. You've got scripture. What else? The Pope. And what else? Tradition. So you've got three sources of authority. It was the three-legged stool. And theoretically, all three of them held the same authority, but it always seemed like Scripture got the short end of the stick when it came to determining the doctrine and practice of the church. So this idea was there is purgatory when you die unless you are a saint. All right? Now, by the way, if you've read the New Testament, you know all believers are saints. But Roman Catholicism created a hierarchy of saints. So there were kind of lower saints like me, and then there were the really holy saints, the really godly people that have been canonized as saints. So the really godly people, they got to go straight into heaven. The rest of us, we probably need a little while in purgatory. Purgatory, what word do you hear in the beginning of that? Purge. I've got to have my sins purged a little more. I'm not pure enough to enter heaven yet. I haven't done quite enough in this life. I've still got too much remaining sin. Therefore, I've got to get it worked out of me in a couple thousand years of purgatory. That was the bad news. The good news was those super godly people actually had done, and I wish I was making this stuff up, by the way, but you can read all of this in history. Those super godly saints, those extra saints, they had what were called works of super erogation. All right, not super irrigation, super erogation. Eros meaning works. All right, above and beyond works. So if you had a saint, name a saint from history. All right, St. Anthony. Such a good dude. He did more good works than he needed to get into heaven. So what do we do with his leftovers, Rome says? Let's put them in what's called the treasury of merit. Okay, so it was this idea of a bank. 
Again, I wish I was making this up. The idea of a bank where all of the leftover good works of the saints could go. They don't need them, right? They got straight into heaven. But you know who does need them? Reed. Reed needs them bad. And so Reed, let's make a deal. You can buy some of those leftover good works to get yourself into heaven or to get your mom or your dad into heaven. It was a major business by this point. You had a guy named Johann Tetzel who would go town to town peddling indulgences. And he had a famous saying, Heidi's going to say it for us in German for us in a moment if you would, but it works in English too. When a coin in the coffer rings, your mom from purgatory springs. What is it? Yep, it rhymes in English. I mean, it's the perfect saying. It rhymes in German and English. Um, Salvation is no longer by grace. Rome still uses the language of grace, but it is grace plus works. So going back to our Jerome problem with his Latin Vulgate and do penance, what has evolved over A thousand years is the idea that faith plus works equals salvation. And it has become so incorporated that I can now buy what I lack in my own goodness. So the Roman Catholic view of salvation is at baptism, my sins are washed away. But the problem is I'm not done sinning. And so I've got to keep doing the sacraments. I've got to keep doing them. And the sacraments infuse grace into me to help make up for some of the sins that I've committed. Now, they've got to be venial sins. They can't be mortal sins. If they're mortal sins, I'm in huge trouble. But as long as they're little peccadillos, as long as they're small sins, which the Bible doesn't distinguish, but as long as they're small sins, it's okay. Is this biblically compatible at all? You got about 15 problems so far, (laughs) just theologically speaking, with the things I've said, if you try to compare it with Scripture. One of them is that when somebody is trusting in Jesus Christ, their sins are purged forever. He took them all upon himself. If Jesus left even one sin for me to deal with, if he said, you know, Alex, I'm going to deal with all those nasty things you've done, except for that time you were six and you rolled your eyes at your parents, I would still suffer for eternity for my sins. But Jesus took all of my sins at once upon himself on the cross. Colossians 2.13, he canceled the record of our debt. So this idea that I need to be purged of anything else really is saying Jesus didn't finish what he started. You know, you got another problem. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. And Rome's saying, well, faith plus works. So if we were to write this, I think if we were to write this according to Scripture, we would say faith equals salvation. Now, I think you've got to ask a question, though, because the Bible does talk about things we ought to do. There are imperatives about how we ought to live the Christian life. Where does that fit into all of this? Jesus says you'll know them by their fruit. So faith, True faith leads to salvation, and actually faith itself is a gift from God. It's given by him. We wouldn't want it. We wouldn't seek it in the first place. We'll get to that next week, Lord willing. But it leads to salvation and a life of seeking to please God. But we can't do that on our own. It is only through the finished work of Christ. A man named Martin Luther, here's Tetzel out peddling indulgences. Luther had gone to, uh, he was going to be a lawyer. He was stuck in a thunderstorm one day. He makes a deal with St. Anne. If you get me out of the storm, I'll go into the ministry. He gets out of the storm alive. He goes into the ministry. That's, that may be apocryphal. We really don't know. 
But regardless, Luther goes into the ministry. He's not a sincere believer. We were actually talking about this right before the class started. Luther was plagued by a guilty conscience. He spent years in a monastery as a monk and had a guilty conscience all the time. He never felt like his sins were taken away, which he was exactly right. Roman Catholicism was teaching a religion that could not fully take away sins. So Luther has this great quote. This is how it translates into English. Um, If ever anyone could get to heaven through monkery, it was me. No monk had ever worked harder, he says, because his conscience was so plagued by the guilt of his sins. Well, in God's providence, in the monastery, he's charged with teaching two things, Psalms and Romans. Psalms and Romans, two good places to start if your conscience is plagued. Look with me at Romans 1 for a moment. Luther had been wrestling and struggling with Romans. Somebody asked Luther one time, do you love God, Martin? He said, love God? I I think I hate him. Because he thought God was only pleased with him if he did enough. And he knew he could never do enough. Look at it, starting at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Martin had been reading it as the righteousness of God was something he had to attain to himself. And he knew he wasn't there. And after years of monkery, he's still not there. And he starts to be concerned, I'm never going to get there. And so the righteousness of God became a nightmare for Martin. And then one day, as the Spirit often does, he takes our hearts and shines a light into them. And the truths that perhaps we've known for years begin to make sense to us by the light of the Holy Spirit And Luther realizes when it's talking about the righteousness of God being revealed, he's not talking about some righteousness he has to attain to. It's it's Christ's righteousness imputed to him. Luther called it alien righteousness. It's, It's a righteousness from outside of myself. So Rome is saying you've got to build up enough innate righteousness through the sacraments. And Luther realizes, no, I can't. It's all the imputed righteousness of Christ credited to my account. And that's the spark that really leads to the Reformation. You saw with Huss and Wycliffe and those guys, he wasn't the first to get the gospel in that, gen- in, in that age, but he was the one that really uh, sparked the Reformation. So in those days, this was social media. This is the doors of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Luther had 95 theses, 95 thoughts about the church. I was excited to hear there was a man that, with only 95 recommendations for the church. I mean, most people have a lot more than that. Uh, just kidding. But Luther nails his 95 theses to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, and their concerns. And if you ever read through them, they're not nitpicky concerns. Luther's actually willing to put up with a lot more than I would have. But his big concern is salvation must be by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. This thing that has been concocted in Roman Catholicism is faith plus works. Grace has no role in it, and it is not to the glory of God because salvation doesn't depend on God, but on you. And so Luther says, he actually did not intend to start a new branch of Christendom. He just wanted to reform the church from within. He never wanted to divide. But as he continued to teach what the scriptures taught, it became obvious that he had no choice. So 1521, Luther is tried at the Deet of Worms. If you're ever reading it, it looks like the Diet of Worms. All right, it's not. It's the Deet of Worms. It was a a theological trial where he was examined. He was given an opportunity to repent of his false teachings Uh, He took a night to pray about it. Uh, He would have had to disown everything he had publicly said about the gospel contradicting the Roman Catholic Church. He says, I cannot, I will not. Uh, Here I stand, I can do no other. 
was recommending earlier, Roland Bainton's great biography of Luther, uh, Here I Stand. So Luther is tried, Diet of Worms, he's found guilty. On his way into prison, Frederick of Saxony, who was a fan of Luther, sends some masked men to kidnap him. Um, they take him into a castle where he would go into hiding and spend, I don't know, at least a year, I think, translating the New Testament into German. See, that is really at the heart of the Reformation, is getting the Bible into the hands of the people. Because Luther knew that councils and priests and popes and pastors could err, but the Bible never errs. So if we can equip the people to read the scriptures for themselves, this will never happen again. And so his goal was always to teach the average person to read the Bible. You can understand then why he would want it so badly to translate the scriptures into the common tongue so that average people could read them. You know that, right? That when you are looking, when you are listening to the preaching of the word, I don't care if it's me or Pastor Steve or any of the famous preachers that you may find on YouTube or any of those, you need to keep your Bible open. Acts 17, the Bereans were more noble than any others. They searched the scriptures for themselves to see that these things were true. You don't take it on my word. You don't take it on the word of the Westminster Confession. You don't take it on the word of our elders. You take it on the word of God. And that must be the only rule of faith and practice for the believer. So Luther realizes two things. One, justification is totally out of whack in Roman theology, but two, Scripture has to be returned to its rightful place as the head and authority of the church and as the voice of God. So that's what's happening, 1517, 1521, 1534. This is my favorite straight line with a crooked stick story. 1534, you've got Henry VIII. What's Henry VIII really most famous for? For for example, a popular song that might have been written about him. He He had a lot of wives, right? And these rascally wives kept failing him. How did they keep failing him? They wouldn't give him a son. Science is an interesting thing. Um, But Henry VIII gets, he's married. He actually had to get a special papal injunction to marry his first wife. Well, then she won't bear him a son. So he goes to the Pope and he says, I want a divorce. The Pope won't grant it because he was given special dispensation to be able to marry her in the first place. And so the Pope refuses to grant divorce. What's fascinating here? Keep going, yeah. Like, like there's that one, uh, isn't that, isn't that just breaks one of the Ten Commandments? Yep, that's why he had to get a special papal injunction, I think, to be able to marry her in the first place. So if the divorce had been allowed, you'd have one pope canceling out another pope. Well, that could not happen, although it's happened many times through the years. Here's what's fun about this story. Henry has these scholars, and supposedly they're in the basement of the castle doing history research, and they find some undiscovered history, something that was unknown for the last 1,500 years. That was it, the, was it Thomas? I can't remember for sure. That actually what they said was that Thomas went and started the Church of England before Peter started the Church of Rome. So what does that mean, Henry? Rome's not in charge. You are. So 1534, Henry VIII signs the Act of Supremacy, making the king the head of the Church of England. Now, that is problematic on a million levels, isn't it? But God, through that, brought uh, the gospel to England. It became a political maneuver. Henry needed a, a political leader, I mean, a church leader that would grant his divorce or help grant his divorce. And Protestantism, through questionable things that I would not endorse, um, became his ally in seeking a divorce. So he is now the head of the Church of England. And we'll see this more next week, but England more or less becomes Protestant. It actually is going to go back and forth for the next 150 years or so. Uh, But Henry makes himself the head of the church. 1536, 
John Calvin publishes what is still one of the best systematic theologies I think ever written uh, called the Institutes of the Christian Religion. 1559, John Knox, he had fled Scotland. He had been a bodyguard actually for a preacher, uh, George Wishart. Uh, Persecution comes, he had fled Scotland to Geneva. He sat under the ministry of John Calvin. He becomes what we'd call reformed today. He takes the Reformation back to Scotland. Now, it's interesting. You go to Scotland. I've been there. How many of you have ever been to Scotland? One. Nice. All right. And my wife. Um, You go to Scotland, and they're very, very proud of their education. They're proud of their history. But you look prior to the Scottish Reformation in the 1560s, and it was really a base pagan village. It was a base pagan people with very little education, very little civilization. Um, The gospel revolutionized it. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in a great lecture he gave on the Scottish Reformation, says that in the history of the world, he cannot think of one Reformation that so drastically changed a people as the Scottish Reformation did. It was almost overnight that Scotland was changed from a pagan people to a sincerely Christian people. Um, And so it's funny, you're there, and they're bragging about their, uh, uh, their education. They're bragging about all their history. But we, we came to uh, the birthplace of John Knox. Did you ever, did you go to Edinburgh when you were there? We just played golf. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, we came to the birthplace of John Knox, and we were on one of those double-decker bus tours, and the driver of the bus said, here's the home of that wicked man, John Knox, that was so mean to the queen. Um, Bloody Mary. Uh, or Mary, Queen of Scots, excuse me. Um, she, uh, we'll get into that later. Knox really revolutionized Scotland with the gospel. He believed that education was central to what they needed to be doing. And so uh, much of what Scotland's so proud of today, they don't realize they owe it to John Knox. Uh, If you ever want to read a a moderately interesting book, (laughs) if you're really interested in this sort of thing about how democracy came in through the Scottish and English Reformations, there's a book called The Emergence of Liberty in the Western World by Douglas Kelly. Um, it's not on a lot of our radars. Dr. Kelly's a really good friend of mine. I get to go up and be with him this week for his birthday. He turns 80 this week. Um, but he wrote that, uh, if you're interested, you can borrow mine. Um, let me tell you another really good book about all this stuff. It's probably one of the most fun books I've ever read. Uh, it's called, um, The Unquenchable Flame by Michael Reeves. I'm pretty convinced Michael Reeves may be one of the two or three best pastors I've ever heard in my life. Just one of the best, but he's also a great writer. And he makes this whole story that I've been telling and will continue telling, he makes it a lot of fun. So I would really commend that book if the things I've been talking about have grabbed your interest. Knox leads the Reformation in Scotland. The Holy Spirit does a great work. He's doing great works in the, through the Reformation, not really through the leadership of the Reformation, but through the recovery and redistribution of Scripture into the hands of the people. So you've got Reformation going on in England, in France, in Scotland, um, many, many other places. Let me point to two things, to two dates here that are close together. 1637. Cogito ergo sum. What's that mean? I think, therefore I am, by Rene Descartes. It becomes the basis of the Enlightenment. It really changes. I would argue that it changes the way people think more than any book outside of the Bible in the last 500 years. Um, Descartes writes that it sparks the idea, it leads to the idea that man is the measure of all things. It's what's behind modernism and postmodernism and whatever we're living through today. So 1637, Descartes writes that. Nine years later, the Westminster Confession of Faith is drafted. And we're actually going to focus our attention on the Westminster Confession of Faith next week. But the Westminster Confession is, is begun... It was written to be the doctrinal statement for the Church of England. You had civil war going on in England uh, between, effectively, the Catholics and the Protestants. Uh, And in the anticipation that the Protestants were going to win, Parliament asks a group to draft what came to be known as the Westminster Confession of Faith. It was a doctrinal statement for the Church of England. 
It's not a perfect statement. Nothing apart from Scripture is perfect. But it's a whole lot better than anything I could write. It's probably a whole lot better than anything you could write. I think it's one of the most helpful statements of faith ever written. It's 33 chapters uh, of wonderfully rich pastoral theology. It became the basis for the church, the theological basis for the Church of England for just a few years. It became the theological doctrine, uh, the doctrinal statement of the Church of Scotland for the next few hundred years. I think technically it still is the statement of faith for the Church of Scotland, but they don't hold to it at all anymore. They have abandoned it long ago. And it is our statement of faith today. When we say that we're a Protestant and evangelical church, we're not saying that Martin Luther came about and started something new. In fact, the goal of the Reformation was not novelty. It was ad fontes. What does ad fontes mean? To return to the sources, to go back to the original stuff. Rather than quoting Pope after Pope after Pope, let's go back to what the scriptures say. That was the movement of the Reformation. And it led to five significant theological corrections. Look with me at page 22. What are called the five solas of the Reformation. So Evie already reminded us sola means alone or only. One of the problems with Roman Catholicism was it was always and. It was faith and works. It was Christ and self. It was Jesus and Mary. You had all these ands where there should have been alones or only. So there were five battle cries or tenets of the Protestant Reformation. The first, and we still stand behind these today. The first is sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the only infallible rule of faith and practice. Scripture cannot and will not err. Not only that, Scripture cannot and will not lead you astray when you follow it. You cannot be obedient to the Word of God and simultaneously acting against the will of God when we're talking about moral issues. Um, So uh, look at 2 Timothy 3.16. I've given you some verses there just... uh, Uh, I'd say, arguing for sola scriptura, but this is probably our favorite in this church. Uh, It's 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. That word is mature and equipped for every good work. I can't do that. So if I were to stand up one day and just tell you a bunch of stories and leave out the scriptures, you are no better for it spiritually. The scriptures are the chisel that God uses to sanctify you, to carve you into the image of the Lord Jesus. Sola Scriptura. Second, solus Christus. Jesus Christ is the only Savior of sinners, and His atoning sacrifice is sufficient to save. So we've already said one of the problems with Roman Catholic theology by the 16th century is you had lots of saviors. So you had Jesus, but you also had all the saints and you sort of became a savior for yourself because you, if you did enough good works, you could secure salvation for yourself. So you had lots of saviors. In fact, what's the title? What's Mary's official title in Roman Catholicism according to the Catholic Catechism? Co-mediatrix and redemptrix. She's on even footing with Christ. She was actually sinless too and sinlessly conceived. Um, Do y'all realize that when when Catholics talk about the Immaculate Conception, they're actually talking about Mary's conception, how she was conceived to be without sin? You've got this problem in Roman Catholicism where it's Jesus and at every turn. And, And so salvation is not Christ's work alone. It's Christ plus at every single turn. Jesus shot that right down in John 14, 6, didn't he? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through, he didn't say my mom and he didn't say St. Anthony, through me. Third, sola fide. Marines, you know, semper fi, semper fidelis, always faithful. Sola fide is faith alone. So you had this idea that faith plus works equals salvation. Scripture teaches it is faith alone. 
It is, faith is not a work. Do you realize that? Faith is actually an acknowledgement that I am devoid of any good works to save myself. So uh, Ephesians, uh, no, we'll go to, let's go to Genesis 15. Because a lot of people think the Old Testament's all about salvation by law. New Testament's all about salvation by grace through faith. That's a completely, uh, that's a wrong understanding. You go to Genesis 15, 6. This guy, Abraham, one of the fathers of our faith, we're told he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham trusted God. Abraham was saved by faith alone. Um, Sola gratia. Grace alone, our salvation is not earned in any part by us. It's a free gift of God from beginning to end. So Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's not the, the, uh, an act of works. It's the gift of God so that no one may boast. Well, the assumption is if you think it's yourself, then you are able to boast. You're the source of your own salvation and you receive the glory for your salvation. But if you come to the fifth sola, what is it? Soli Deo Gloria. What's that mean? To God alone be the glory. We don't give glory to men because our salvation doesn't hinge on anybody in this world, not on your pastor, not on your parents, not on any person in this world, but on the Lord Jesus' finished work alone. And so all things for them to be rightly ordered, must lend themselves and point to the glory of God. Um, This is why in this church, our desire, and we don't do it perfectly, some days we don't even do it well, but our desire is that in all things, Jesus Christ be preeminent. We want him to receive all the attention. We want him to receive all the glory. That ought to be true for this church and that ought to be true for all of our lives. That at every turn, our desire is not me, but Christ in me. We are made to reflect to the world the wonder of Jesus Christ. And so it ought not just be a tenet of the Reformation, but of our own lives to say to God alone be the glory. We'll pick up next week. We're going to narrow the scope a little bit, and we're going to look at what it means to be a reformed church. Let's pray together before we go. Father in heaven, I thank you for your work of providence for the last 2,000 years. It is astounding how you have built the church. It's astounding that here we are 2,000 years later on the other side of the world and can have a faithful gospel witness in this congregation, and there are others in this community, not because of anything in us, but because of how Christ works through time, through space, through flawed individual men, through women, through children, to build the kingdom. Father, help us to to center our hearts, our minds, and our lives upon those realities, and to give Jesus all the glory. It's in his name we pray. Amen.